The Black Book Show with McConnell Sankofa, bringing you the best authors of African heritage from around the world. I am now joined with Francisca Epale, who is the author of the book called How I Conquered Breast Cancer Without Chemotherapy. Welcome, Francisca, to The Black Book Show. Please start by telling the listeners where you're based and give a brief introduction so we know a bit more about you as a person before we begin to talk about your book. Hello, thank you for having me, McConnell. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, wherever you are located. My name is Francisca Epale. I was born in Cameroon, West Africa, from a Cameroonian father and a Jamaican mother. And I've lived on four continents and I am currently based in Toronto, Canada. For a living, I am a French interpreter. I'm an award-winning author, a speaker, and I'm also a real estate investor. During my free time, I like to watch movies, and I am one of the co-facilitators of The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. So let's go on now to talk about your book, How I Conquered Breast Cancer Without Chemotherapy. So what I want you to do to begin with is to give us an overview of the book. Okay. The book I wrote, How I Conquered Breast Cancer Without Chemotherapy, My Journey from a Mess to a Message. The reason why I bought this book, or actually I wrote this book, the major reason is that I have lost five family members to cancer. Actually, I have a seven reasons why everybody should buy this book. The first reason is to influence women to do self-breast examinations and not rely on mammograms for they are not 100% accurate. The second reason is to inspire you that breast cancer is not a death sentence if it is caught early. The third reason to encourage you or to encourage readers to buy several copies for their loved ones as preventative measures. The fourth reason is to change the trajectory of your family life if cancer is genetic. The fifth reason, to empower you to take better care of your health. The sixth reason, to educate you on the possible causes of cancer through my research. And the seventh reason, one out of eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime, according to the American Cancer Society. You mentioned that you had five members of your family who had breast cancer. Did you also have breast cancer? No, five members of my family who had cancer. One of them had breast cancer. I had breast cancer. One out of the five had breast cancer. But cancer is also genetic as well. Okay, I get you. So what I want you to do now is you know, to elaborate more about, um, tell us more information about your book. So can you just summarize you know, the different chapters that you've included in the book? Okay, so chapter one is the Genesis. And if you are a Christian, you will know that the Genesis means the beginning. I talk about my story, how I found a lump. Well, I used to live in the United States. And when I 
I felt a lump. I went to the doctor. They said, oh, you got dense breasts. You don't have to worry. And when I, I came to Canada, I felt a lump. And I was just saying, okay, it's dense breasts. And I felt something. But it was getting bigger. I said, no, this must be more than dense breasts. So I went in to see my doctor. And my doctor did an examination, a mammogram, an ultrasound. And they discovered that I had cancer. I had breast cancer, stage two. So in chapter two, I talked about the necessary lifestyle changes. One of the reasons we have cancer is due to our lifestyle. I had to change my lifestyle completely. For instance, I don't use a microwave anymore. I don't use aluminum foil. I use parchment paper. So those are some of the things I had to change. I had to change my lifestyle, even my shampoo, the body lotion. I use a body lotion, which is very expensive, but it's really, really good. It's organic. So I had to change all that. What I use in cleaning, my home is vinegar and water. All those products we use in, clean, in cleaning the home, most of them are toxic and they're very bad for you. And then chapter three is holistic nutrition. I changed my nutrition. The abbreviation G-BOMS is what I use. G-BOMS, G stands for greens, B stands for beans, O for onions, M for mushrooms, B for berries, and S for seeds. So I don't eat meat wheat or dairy. I avoid those. So chapter four is supplements. I have a whole lot of supplements that I am taking. I'm taking about 10 to 12 supplements, especially with the COVID. I had to take extra supplements. And then um, number five is intermittent fasting. That means I've, I eat two meals a day instead of three. Some people say that you have to eat three meals a day. No, you don't have to. I ate two meals a day and it is fine. Then number six, plant good seeds. By planting good seeds, you mean that you're doing good in the world. We live in a world that sometimes it could be toxic and you, you have to try to be good because if, if you set out to do evil, evil will, will catch up with you. So the different ways that I planted good seeds is through volunteering, through donating to charity. I donate to my favorite charity, which is the Mary Kay Ash a Charitable Foundation, which deals with, um, with cancer and also domestic abuse. So, and then um, chapter seven is self-care. I had to, you have to take care of yourself. I exercise, you know. Some people don't have time to, to exercise, but you need to exercise. And I do breast care, breast self-examinations. You have to examine your breasts. Do not be shy about examining your, your breasts. If you are shy, ask your partner or a husband. And if you don't have one, ask your doctor or you can pay a therapist because I caught the lump myself. The mammograms, the mammogram failed to catch it. So please do breast self examinations. And I spoke to one nurse who said it is good to do it 50 times clockwise and 
anti-clockwise. So the next one is fertilize your body. And that is chapter eight. By fertilizing my body, what I'm referring is like soaking in the sun. If you have dark skin, I'm an African by birth, and I live in Canada. We don't have enough sunlight. You need to go in into the sun. You need to go into the sun. And I also have my daily concoction of garlic and lemons, you know, which I also consume and others as well. And the next one is the power of faith and hope. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. Because of COVID, I didn't go to the church. So we formed a Bible study online where the pastor preached and he says he will he will um, give a sermon. And he asked me to read the scriptures. So my life after breast cancer is number 10. My life. My life after breast cancer is that I am more relaxed. I am a happier person. I don't take things for granted. I lived in China. And when I came back from China, I saw how the difference, how people live. And then after breast cancer, I decided to become a certified health and life coach so that I will be more branded. So that's my book in a nutshell. So you mentioned supplements in one of the chapters in your book. Yes. What supplements did you take to manage your breast cancer? And are you still taking those supplements today? Oh, yes. I'm still taking those supplements. I have a whole list of supplements. I take things like vitamin B, vitamin C, vitamin K, vitamin B12, vitamin D3 plus K2 plus A, red rich, um, red rishi, micronized mushroom capsules, moringa, etc. Also, oh, there's a variety of supplements do you take? Um, do you take them as individual? Some of them are individual and some is like a multivitamin? Yeah, I take five. I divide them up in two, some in the morning, some in the evening. Okay. And in terms of those supplements, um did you was it something like the the doctor recommended or did you fight or do your own for your own research how did you also come up with the you know the correct dosage of each supplement to take well my doctor was against they were very unhappy that i refused to do chemo so i went to see a naturopathic doctor and she's the one who who prescribed these for me as a matter of fact when i told the oncologist that i wasn't going to take chemo that I have been an oncologist for 25 years and no patient has ever refused chemo. I told the guy to relax, to take it easy. I'm just exercising my patient bill of rights. The patient bill of rights states that you, as the patient, you have the right to refuse treatment. I told him that I don't want to use chemo. I'm going to use an alternate treatment. He said, okay. So after one year, I had to come back for a follow-up. And when he examined me, he was so happy. He said, oh, my God. Oh, whatever that doctor did, he did a good job. So I was saying in my heart, this guy was angry that I didn't choose chemo. I come back a year later, I'm cured. He tells me that he's happy. I felt that was very hypocritical. 
Now, the book is titled How I Conquered Breast Cancer Without Chemotherapy. And you've just mentioned chemotherapy and, you know, the doctor wasn't happy that you didn't take chemotherapy and you took, you know, alternatives such as the supplements to, you know, to help your uh, breast cancer situation. Now, for those who don't know, can you explain what is chemotherapy? Okay, chemotherapy is the regular medication, or is it medication, the regular thing that most people, when they have cancer, they undergo. And I did my own research, and I chose not to do chemo because I asked the oncologist, apart from losing my hair, what are the side effects? He said, oh, you get tired. I said, that's not a side effect because I'm always tired anyway. So I came home and I did my research on chemotherapy. And I said, this is, I chose, this is my journey. I chose not to do it. Now, there is a medical disclaimer, okay? Please, there, um, this, this book details my personal experience with an opinions about cancer with a focus on breast cancer. I am not a healthcare provider, I'm a health coach. So the medical or health information in this book is provided as an information resource only and is not to be used or relied on for diagnostic or treatment purposes. This information is not intended to be patient education, does not create any patient-physician relationship and should not be used as a substitute for professional diagnosis and treatment. Based on your research, what are five things that cause cancer? Okay, five things that cause cancer. One. Sorry, breast cancer to be specific. Okay, lifestyle. Two, your diet. Three, genetics. Four, chronic stress. And the fifth one is... um, um, I've forgotten. Environmental toxins. At what age did you develop breast cancer? And I also want to know, is it is breast cancer more likely to women of a particular age group or, or ethnicity? Okay. I developed, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer on August 1st, 2019. And I was, at that time, I was 59. Breast cancer does not discriminate. You can you you can have breast cancer as young as 20. I've heard of a girl of 20 having breast cancer. It does not discriminate. Anybody from any socioeconomic group can catch breast cancer. White, black, Asian. And you mentioned um people it can be passed down genetically. Yes. What is the likelihood of breast cancer? I know you can't say you know exactly percent wise. You might not have those exact statistics, but mm-hmm. um, is, is it likely a lot of times that people get passed down genetically? Yes, cancer in general is genetic. Out of the five family members who had cancer, one of them suffered from breast cancer. And are there different forms of breast breast cancer? Mm, the diff- well, there are different stages. I don't know about the forms because cancer is in four stages. Mine was stage two breast cancer. So I caught mine when it was early. So that's why I said um, breast cancer is not a death sentence if it is caught early. 
But if you wait until stage four, stage four is when you're mostly probably going to pass away. Okay, so it's in different stages. Could you just, um, I know you mentioned stage four, you like to pass away. Could you just go through the different stages? Because you picked up in stage two. So what would stage one be, et cetera, up to stage four? Stage one is very little lump. Because I I I had felt the lump, but I was lazy. I said, well, they said it is dense breast. I felt it. But when it got bigger, I said, no, this is more than dense breast. Stage one should be a little tiny lump. Stage two is a little bigger lump. The stages they are the bigger um the bigger the lump, the higher the stages. Is that the main way of um being diagnosed or for breast cancer, whether it's self-diagnosis or going to a doctor's, is that finding a lump? It's not only the lump, they have to look at the whole thing. Has it spread? Has this they call it mess? metastasize has it spread because i also had to do another another surgery where they had to check under my armpit to find out if it had spread but luckily it had not spread how important is it that we raise awareness of breast cancer it is very important that once a woman starts to develop breasts they should start self-breast examinations don't wait until they are too old and i i think if i'm not mistaken when i was in cameroon there were some medical students who used a dummy they had to they had to press to feel the lumps so from a very early age you should start doing self breast examination and do not be shy it is your body as a matter of fact i did interview a few women and I asked them if they do self-breast examinations and they said no and I said why not oh I'm scared scared of what I'm afraid that I'm going to find something I said really is that why you're scared so that's very strange I found well we're coming to an end of the interview so please give us your final comments and tell the listeners again the title of your book and where they can purchase your book from okay my final comments is that I would like everybody, whether you are male or female, you have a female in your life. It could be your mother, your grandmother, your sister, your niece, your aunt, your sibling, half-sister, cousin, girlfriend, you know, soon to be fiance, sugar mama, side chick, or whatever they call them. One of them may have breast cancer. Try to buy my book. Not try, buy my book. It's on Amazon. You know, it's a very good book and it's an easy read. And whoever you give the book to as a gift, they will thank you eternally. Because everybody who has read my book, they said that it's an easy read. I made the book so easy that even if you are 10 years old or 12 years old, you can read it and understand it. So please take action, buy my book. It's on Amazon. And just tell the listeners again the title of the book. How I Conquered Breast Cancer Without Chemotherapy, My Journey from a Mess to a Message. Well, that's the conclusion of this section of the Black Book Show with myself, author McCollin Sankofa, speaking with author Francisca Ipale. Thank you very much for having me, McConnell. It was a pleasure Thank you. being here.
I am now joined with Paul Posey, who is the author of multiple books. The two books of his that we're going to focus on on this show are I Am My Own Dad and 75% Man. Welcome, Paul, to the Black Book Show. Please start by telling the listeners where you're based and give us a brief introduction about yourself before I begin to ask you some questions about your books. Okay. First, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Paul Posey. I was born and raised in Gary, Indiana. Uh, pretty much uh, a single family, uh, single mom with uh, four siblings. She was a, a steel worker and we were just kids being kids. And I joined the Marine Corps and retired. And here I am today. I'm living in uh, Atlanta, in the Atlanta area. And I've been here about 12 years now after retiring from the Marines. Let's go on to talk about your book, I Am My Own Dad. Can you give us a summary about this book? I Am My Own Dad speaks on how it feels to be a young man who doesn't have a dad. And I wrote the book so that other young men can think about being the dad they ever wanted to have because they didn't have a dad. And you should take that route for the children you're about to have. And that's how you break the curse that you will have to restart your position as dad. So I had to be my own dad so I can make these moves. Can you talk to us about the different chapters included in your book? Ooh, I got some heavy chapters. Here we go. Chapter one, missing pieces. It talks about the missing pieces that we have when our dads are absent in our life. That goes for both parents, but pretty much this book is about dads. Anger and pain is my second chapter. It's the pain I felt in the absence of a dad and how it changed my life when I met my dad. Mothers and fathers are the expectations we should have uh, of what a mother and a father should be in our life. Meeting my dad, that's the next chapter. What was it like to meet my dad after 27 years? And I introduced my mom in the next chapter by meeting my mom, that's the name of it. The chapter after that is leaving my dad. Our relationship was severed after meeting him. Model behavior, it talks about what our children do when they watched us. We, we need to model the behavior we want them to have. Picking up the pieces talks about how to gather yourself after and at the end of your relationships to move on for your kids that are coming. And it talks about being a father to being a dad. And a father is the one that makes you and the dad is the one that raises you. That was all the chapters of that book. So something that I picked up on is that you said it changed your life when you met your dad after 27 years. Now, I know you thought your father was dead and then you met him at 27. How did you feel knowing your mom lied to you about his death? And then what was it like meeting your father after all of those years? Let's talk about the day I met him. I met him on the phone first. My, my uh, former wife was going to purchase a car and he was the seller of the car. And he saw my last name on the front of the car. And he uh, asked her what part of the Posey family was she from? And she said she was married to me. And then 
she asked him his name and it was the name that I shared with her of my dad's full name. So that was the day she met my dad. So I, uh, we were, we were states apart. I was in Washington state and he was in Indiana at the time and I got a chance to talk to him. And so after setting the date that I was going to meet him, I called my mother and I said to my mother, I thought you told me he was dead. And that was about 10. We were about 10. I was about 10 years old when I finally asked her that. And she said, shit, he was dead to me. That, that blew me away because she fed me a lie and she never corrected the lie. And I was raised on that lie. And I didn't speak to her for two years after that conversation, because the very next question I asked to her was, when I did ask you about him, why didn't you just tell me the kind of person he was? Why didn't you do something for me? And what about me? What about me that I don't get an answer? And my mother said, what the fuck about you? So I think it comes down to this. She hated him more than she loved me. So a couple of, about four days later, I meet my dad. And just to shake his hand changed my life because most young men are angry because they're not connected to their dads. And, and, and my theory is there's a forge of energy. There's a, there's, a, there's a pot of energy that needs to be forged by dad. Dad needs to curb you, curb that energy so you can use that energy to be a greater man. But when dad's not there, that energy can easily turn into anger. And anger pretty much puts a lot of young men in the mouth of the lion of going to prison or being killed. What was the relationship that you had with your dad after meeting him? Did you see him several times? Are you Did you maintain a relationship or was it kind of, that was it kind of thing? What happened afterwards? After meeting my dad at his house, I had four more siblings, three brothers and a sister, just like on my mom's side. And I told him, I'll be back tomorrow. And I'm bringing three of my kids with me so they can meet their granddaddy. Just before I get to the house, I call him on the phone. And I says, what do you guys want to eat? I'm going to pick up some food for everybody. I must have been about six blocks, like a half a mile from his house. And uh, I pick up the food and I go to the house. And I'm unloading my kids and the food. And I smell weed, reefer, or marijuana, whatever you guys want to call it. See, I was in the Marine Corps at the time. And my job was as a substance abuse control officer. And I was very anti-drugs, no drug usage at all. To smell him and my brothers smoking as I pulled up with my kids. I felt very disrespected because you're about to meet the people I love 
and you're doing whatever the hell you want to do, not knowing that you just about to meet a part of a new part of love for you guys. So I told my kids, I asked my dad, I said, were you guys just smoking? He said, yeah, me and the boys are just, you know, we were just fooling around. I don't think that was necessary to fool around on that day with my two daughters and my son in a bassinet. And I told my kids, say hello to your grandfather and say goodbye. This will be the last time you see him. And I never went back. That was the last time, last time I spoke to him, last time I saw him. I felt disrespected. I felt like I'm the alpha and omega to my children and I'm responsible to, to who I exposed them to. And I just never went back. You know, what I want to ask now is obviously you've written a book and you've got the story out and it's, you know, it's a very emotional, a very sensitive and personal topic that you've written about. And some people would have just bottled it up and some people may have not expressed their um, emotions. What was it that made you decide to, you know, to put pen to paper and, you know, put out your emotions, your feelings and, and you know, what your what happened with you and your father, you know what, so into the public domain? Therapy. You know, at some point, a man becomes emotionally constipated. He is stacked up full of emotions. He's supercharged like ions. And he can explode at any time because he doesn't have a proper channel or proper circle to release without being judged, persecuted, made fun of, or his pain and his sorrows be weaponized in relationships. I wanted to change my life. And I started getting therapy in 2016 after I got divorced in 2011. And in 2016, um, I started getting help, mental, mental help for PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, and that comes from a conglomerate of things in my life. You don't know how bad your life is until you sit down and reflect. I reflected on my life back in 2011 but I didn't do anything about changing my life until 2016. When that message hits you, you will throw up the message. It is your assignment to write the book because this is for everybody else, not just yourself. And I've run into a lot of angry young men, constipated fathers, and they need to hear somebody actually say what needs to be said without fear of family uh, rebuking the story or, or, or back what you were, you were uh, stifled in your emotions. Uh, there's no one there to stop me. And I just unloaded. Uh, I never wanted to be an author, but I have kids, I have seven kids and they have to understand that you can uh, redirect your life, that you can actually um, help your family. You, you can actually redefine dad's role in, in, in your future 
um, generations. And that's what moved me to do all that because I, I don't like, I'm not here to sell my pain. Like I see some authors, this is not a testimony. This is the truth. And you have to write to help. It's, you can write to release, but you have to write to help because you're not the first son. You're not the first dad. You are the next and you have to help the next. And that's why I wrote this book. How important is fatherhood and the relationship between a dad and his son? You are the template. You are the model. Your child is a sponge. And when you are in front of your child, he sees things that you're not trying to show him and he absorbed things that you're trying to show him. That means you have to sacrifice what you want to do and be what you want him to be in character, not job per se, but in character, forthright, honest, responsible, accountable, understand that there's limitations out there in fatherhood. That is your job. And what you can't do is say you can't do your job because somebody else didn't do their job. It is your job to model for your son, to give him those, those nuggets, to tell him your shame, to tell him your decision-making factors so he can evolve beyond you. And that's what we forget sometimes. In our selfishness, because someone didn't love us, we don't do what we're supposed to do for the next level, and that's our sons. There's a chapter in your book titled From Father to Dad, Be a Dad, Not a Father. What is the difference between a father and a dad? A father's the name on a birth certificate. A father's the one responsible for getting a mother, to, getting a mother pregnant. A dad. I say sometimes... You have to dad your kids. Dad is a term of endearment. When you call a prof, a prof, a, 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 perfect, a professor, a prof, you know, it, it is, it's, it's, it's a name because they're giving something to you and you're getting something from it. They're pouring it into you as dads. You're going to always remember what they taught you. Your father may never be there. But a dad is going to be there. You'll tell the stories about the dad. And then you'll spit on the idea of the father who wasn't there. And people know the difference. Has the kind of absence of a relationship that you had with your dad made you focus and put him to more energy and trying even harder to make sure your children had a dad, uh, which you was missing in your life? First thing I had to work on me before I could do that, because when you have missing pieces, you move with missing pieces, you love with missing pieces, you lead with missing pieces. So I had to self-reflect 
and gather those things that I mentioned earlier that a dad must have to show that to them. So it's, it was a process. It wasn't just says, Hey, I'm, I'm dad now. No, there was focus on me first, my role and, and looking at what I didn't want to show and what I needed to show and to still grow and to grow right in front of them. So in order to do that for them, it, it, it takes the focus. You know, you have to put, I had to put me aside because they're going to live longer and they're going to be greater than me. And the only way they can do that, if I do me first, and that's what took me to that part to, to be in front of them as their dad. And that was pretty tough. In your opinion, uh, can a woman raise a male into becoming a man in the absence of a father uh, who's not at home? My mother raised four boys and a girl. I say no. No, I have to say no, because... Her job was not to be my dad. And my mother never was my mother. She functioned as a dad. And that is, that is emotionally confusing because she was trying to forge that energy for her sons, but she lacked giving the nurturing side, the love side that mothers normally bring to the table, which is balance from what dad does, structure, discipline, drive. And that's why you have two parents. When mothers attempt to, to raise sons, they, they are still missing elements. They, they're, they're overwhelmed by the role and they do too much in one area. That means it lacks in another area. And that's why you need two parents. So I have to say, they, 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 they try, they try as hard as they can, but they can't do it. And that's why there's a mother and a father, a mommy and a daddy. <laughs> How has writing this book affected your life and your relationship with your children? I cried the most I've ever cried in my life writing 70% of that book. I had insomnia. It got me to feel. The greatest lies I ever told was how I felt. I would say, I'm good. I'm all right. No, that didn't hurt. Those lies. So in writing this book, there's no more lies. Pen to paper. You know, it's hard to write a lie, but when you start writing the truth, the truth made me uh, well-rounded emotionally, uh, that uh, I was, uh, I had diarrhea. There you go. I had uh, emotional diarrhea because it wouldn't stop. I went from constipation to diarrhea. That's I'd probably be the best way I could say it. And it got me to be vulnerable which I don't like the word vulnerable because it means open to attack. Uh, and that's what it felt like with my children because 
by the time I, I went through this transition, my children are adults. So they're asking me questions that were a part of my shame, uh, a part of my piss poor uh, decision-making, part of my poor decision-making factors. Man, that was, whew. but it was all, it was all worth it for today and for my grandchildren. You're listening to the Black Book Show hosted by myself, McConnell Sankofa. I have a special guest this evening, Paul Posse. Before we go on to speak about your second book, Paul, can you tell the listeners where they can order your book, I Am My Own Dad? Yes, you can find me on Amazon. Uh, if you type in uh, Paul Posey eBooks and you'll find my books, uh, I Am My Own Dad and several other ones right there on Amazon. You can always contact me via Facebook also. Paul, I'm now going to speak to you about your book, 75% Man. Please start by giving us an overview about the book, 75% Man. Sure. 75% uh, Man is a look at men, how we have been chosen to lead families when we're truly underdeveloped in that area. We have our own emotional battles and, and traumas that need to be addressed that are pushed aside uh, when we take on that role. And we've never really understood who made us, what it did to us, what they did to us, what it did to us, what we did about it going through those steps in life and who we've become because of what they've done to us and because we have not addressed it and also who we want to be. And that's what that book talks about, those steps right there and the importance of mental, getting uh, mental health, assessments and help. Please tell us more about the content included in the different chapters of your book. Sure. I'm just going to read those right quick. Uh, the creation, uh, how we how we tend to come about being the children that we are when we're not in wedlock, when we weren't a plan, the creation of a child. Looking, the, looking through the eyes of a boy, it talks about as a young man or a boy views life from his point of view. Uh, Next chapter is deciphering the past, how you need to do self-reflection to see what is what you are part of and who you were, who you were and what you were in your family and how your family was looking backwards. The product of a man, it talks about what men are or what men could be, because there's so many people out there talking about it, but I don't think everybody's grasping the role of man these days. Then it talks about the man in me, who I've become, who I wanted to be, who I thought I was. It touched on, it touched on all of those things there. And uh, what is whole? The book says 75%. And we have to get the whole. It would be great if we were whole, whole men, before we take on a family. And then we would be able to lead better. And, uh, and our, our families would prosper if we would do more work before we start making a family, 
And that's what the whole man is. How did you come up with that rationale of 75% man? I noticed all the things that I was missing. When you have missing pieces, then you have missing train, missing training. And it's just things I just didn't know. But if I had a loving dad, I would know um, how to uh, resolution, conflict resolution. Uh, a loving man would, would teach you, you don't have to beat your wife in, in to solve a problem. Like I watched as a kid, my mom would get beat and that's how they had conflict resolution. I would have known how to create um, side hustles, uh, working on cars and things like that a whole a lot sooner, uh, learning how to cut grass, learning how to do so many things uh, if he would have been a part of my life. And that, and, and that would have made me closer to whole. He would have told me it had been okay to, cr to cry. He would have been to feel, you know, a whole man can say those things. But a man at 50%, he's just going to be a provider or he's just going to be a baby maker. He's just going to have so many missing pieces. And that's what kind of drove me to understand that there was more to it. I understand now there is more to it. And if we don't share that there's more to it, no one will ever get those other parts and they'll always be half. And then another thing too, when women take on men in their lives, when they have no father, then both of you are equally uh, at 50, 50, 60%. But if she has a whole dad and her dad has modeled what a man could and should be, and she takes on a 50% man that bruises his ego, and she's going to constantly say, but my dad, my dad, my dad. And if he had no dad, then they have a problem. And so that's kind of why I wrote the book, because we need to get these men to understand that, that you're not whole and everybody should strive to be whole and get all the lessons that they can to be a better person and a greater person. Can a man ever be 100 percent? Yes. I believe a man could be 100%. I believe he'll do 90% of the work and the 10% is the circle that's around him to, that enhances him. Absolutely. People would like to say that has nothing to do, and I think I wrote this in the book, has nothing to do with perfection. Has nothing. There's a pie. Life is like a pie. And there's finances, a slice of finances. There's a slice of fatherhood. There's a slice of manhood. There's a slice of sonhood. There's a slice of professionalism. You need to be great in all those areas. Attempt to be a bigger piece in all those areas your whole life. When you become whole, you'll be closer to peace. There's nothing you're scared to work on or in your life to gather more understanding in your life. That will make you whole. And then you, there's nothing you can't do. Limited people have limited actions. Something you mentioned in your book and you spoke about earlier was mental health. And it's sometimes it's a bit of like a, a taboo topic or subject to the black community. Um, why are we struggling with getting mental health help and particularly, uh, you know, black males? Well, um, 
because we keep repeating that statement that is a stigma that we don't use mental health, that keeps it alive. Uh, so I had no issue to move beyond the stigma because my family's more important than the stigma. A lot of people don't get the health because of old statements, yes, but it's also the fear of change because you're going to have to apply the strength, apply yourself to something you've never really put forth. It's you. That self-love and that self-care is under mental health. And if you're always in pain about your past or if you never understood it, or go back to what I said earlier, uh, if you never really understood your parents or they did something to you, you haven't even never spoke of. And then when you do reach that point where you can speak about it, and then you understand how that has created you and then who you want to be. See, if you can't get out your way, then mental health uh, assessments or a psychiatrist or a counselor can give you the tools to get out your own way. But we can't be scared of that. And I tell you what, I went into that office in October. By December, I had written five books. In a total of eight months, in a total of eight months, I wrote 12 books. I was given tools and seemingly the permission to be the best Paul Posey I could be. And it, it just, I hit the gas. So for those who are scared of getting any mental, mental health help, you're doing yourself a disjustice, no matter what people say, because this is the rest of your life. And you got, to me, you only got two lives, before you know better and after you know better. You go from surviving, you go to living. What do you think of the state of men, dads, husbands in black culture in USA? A lot of them are underdeveloped. We're often called broken. But in my mind, how can you be broken if you were never whole? When you're underdeveloped, you're missing pieces. These are the men that are becoming dads. And these are the men that are husbands. They're not, they're not nowhere near. It's one thing not to be whole and on your way. Another is not knowing that you're not whole. And they don't get it. And, and it's tough to watch these men pretend or put on a front that they have it together and they really don't and they're suffering. The men who are getting these video games and sitting, sitting on the sofa while she conducts the whole family around him, there's problems. That is the symptom to the problem. You're isolated in the middle of the house, not engaging your family or you're doing some substance that keeps you from being everything you can be with your family. And majority of things is from yesterday. So when we don't address it, we can't move forward. And that's what was a problem for me and a lot of men that I come across. 
So we have to understand that these men are, are they need more of self, not, not isolation, but the exp exploration of self to see exactly where they are so they know exactly where they want to go. Now your book, 75% Man, um, I'm wondering who's the target audience of the book? Is it males, you know, of all ages? Is it black males or certain age? What's the audience? Um, and also, um, what do you want the reader to take away from it? And is there anything, you know, unique that's in the book? Uh, my audience is all men. All men. It doesn't matter your economic status. You are where you are. You can be a millionaire and still be underdeveloped. You know, you can be extremely poor and be underdeveloped. So all men, you know, it, because I, but what happens is when women read this book, which I wanted to address women, but in writing this book, when they read the book, they say, that's me too. That's me too. So I want my audience to be those who understand that they are missing pieces and they have an opportunity to change it around because our children need us to evolve. And the only way they can be greater than us if we do great things and the great things that we could possibly do is increase ourselves from 50 to 75 to 90% to being whole, because that is what evolution is, is growing at each level the next time it comes around. And that's what we want. So in terms of the book, then, is there something, anything unique um, that's in the book or is there something that you really want people to take away from reading the book? Yes. Um, never confuse underdeveloped with broken. And I think women, when they have disdain for men, they use the word broken men. And I think once they change that language and really start looking at the men that they have, they'll see there are missing pieces. And you need to support him attempting to become a whole rather than the disdainment. Because there's nothing worse than the person who lays next to you and who loves you shows disdainment because you have a handicap. I want them to take away that men can be greater even, even at 50. Even you're not done. You can do this today. Well, thanks for coming on the Black Book Show, Paul. Before you go, please tell the listeners your final comments and also remind the listeners the title of your two books and where those books can be purchased from. Okay. I think when it comes down to sharing information about what comes to us, what's happened to us, we put it in a book. And these books are gems. They're almost a free insight to life. And if you read more books, you will find more answers. You can find my books on Amazon. I actually have a total of 15 books. You can find my book, I Am My Own Dad and 75% Man. And there's some bonus books there on Amazon. Uh, you can find those there. 
And if you can't find them, if you can't locate them, you can always reach out to me on Facebook and I'll be more than happy to respond and direct you in the right direction. Okay. And if someone wants to contact you on Facebook, is it just Paul Posey on Facebook? Yes. Paul Posey on Facebook. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. So, well, that's conclusion of this interview on the Black Book Show with host myself, McConnell Sankova, speaking with author Paul Posey. I am now joined with Maxine Blake, who is the author of the book called Don't Poo in the Pudding Bowl. Welcome, Maxine, to the Black Book Show. Please start, Maxine, by telling our listeners about who you are as a person before I start to ask you some questions about your book. Hi, McCann, and thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm I'm looking forward to tell you all about me. Right, so I'm now 61 years old. I'm black British. My parents come from the Caribbean, specifically from Jamaica. I was educated in Wolverhampton and I traveled, what is it, something like 100 miles north to Sheffield. And I'm one of those people who, when they travel to Sheffield to university, they tend to stay. And a city tends to be made up of lots of those kind of people. So I've now been teaching for 37 years, which is, yeah, it's a long time, isn't it, when you, when you say it like that. Um, I found it's my vocation. And I still see students from my very, very first days from when I started teaching in 1983 and I still recognize them and it's funny how you do that and they come up to me and when they do that I think oh my goodness is it something bad is it something good and there's a big smile on their faces so that's absolutely great so yeah that's a little bit about me so I live in Sheffield with my husband and my son who travels a lot too so we're a bit of a travelly family and we we like to uh, go aboard and do hiking and we we ski too which is nice and at the moment it's roasting hot so yes a little bit about me Maxine you retired from teaching in 2020 but you spent 37 years as a teacher that's a very long time why did you get into teaching first of all and what made you stick at being a teacher for such a long time instead of going into another profession it's a very long time, isn't it? And I certainly didn't go into it for the pay. I can tell you that much. Um, when I was younger, okay, so I said before that my family are Caribbean, so my parents were typically Caribbean parents. So my father said, this is what you're going to do when you you know, grow up, you should be a nurse. And I just said, yes, dad, because I just didn't know any different. I hadn't thought about what I wanted to do. And I remember at my um, secondary school having a, a meeting with a senior mistress. And she was also a pilot, I remember. And her saying, don't think about all the traditional things that you can go into girls. You can do something better for yourselves. And I thought, hmm, well, maybe I could, but I didn't think of it anymore. And then when I was about 13 or 14, I remember walking down a corridor and I was behind my religious studies teacher and my physical education teacher. And they were having this almost debate and they were saying, no, I think she'd make a great RE teacher. No, I think she'd make a really good PE teacher. And I suddenly realized they were talking about me. And I went, wow, they're having a discussion about me. They think I can do that. And, I, and then it, it dawned on me, no, I can do that. So from the age of 13, that's exactly what I wanted to be. Now, my big thing was I had to go home and tell my father, who really wasn't happy at the time, because he was pointing out that, no, 
qualified teachers are cleaning toilets or I know jobs. And I went, no, dad, that won't be me. That won't be me at all. And from then I traveled to Sheffield, stayed. I'm still here, uh, traveled about a little bit. And I've taught in um, secondary school. So if you're not in from the UK, we secondary school is from when a child's about 11 to about 16. So I taught there for a few years and then I went on to post 16 or college because I really I thought I want to grab the older students and really form their minds and things so I spent the majority of my time teaching from 16 to 19 plus really and then yep come 2020 I thought no I I have a life I, I do so many other things and I want to do something for myself I had so many ideas from traveling and I you know February 2020 I went to the principal and said yeah, that's it. I'm going to leave because I want to travel. And you might notice I said February 2020. Well, we know what happened in March 2020. So the only way I was traveling was traveling my mind. I was traveling absolutely nowhere. So I had to have a change of plan. But that was it. That was my 37 years in, in education. Let's go on to talk about your book, Don't Poo in the Pudding Bowl. Please, can you give me a summary of your book? I think giving you a summary is a little bit in, uh, is a difficult one, but as I said before, um, I taught in secondary. So you're thinking, don't poo. That that's not the kind of thing a teacher of secondary age would talk about. When I was um, teaching, so my son was at another school. I used to come home every day, and I not even hard, hardly say hi, guys. How are you doing? How was your day? But oh my goodness, guess what happened to me now? And they'd look up, and I'd give them this big story. My son would look at me, and I said, "What?" He said, "Mom, you, you something's not normal. Either the boy, those boys aren't normal, or you aren't, because those stories they don't happen in my school." And I just said, "Really? I thought." Those happen to, to everybody, those kind of weird questions you get. Imagine 15, 16 year old boys, 17, being hormonal, the kind of questions they might ask, ask you after an anatomy lesson. And so he said, you need to write this down. So I thought, OK, I'll start to write little bits of it down. And I realized that having written a few stories down and I tried it out in a few people that um, what I wanted to to bring across to people, especially 2020, when everybody was really so distressed and anxiety ridden. I didn't want to talk about education from a serious point of view, but what I wanted to talk about was about um, me, my relationships with my students, the funny things that happened between me and them, them, and sometimes the exposing and sometimes slightly humiliating things that happened to me. And if I could talk about things that happen to me in that kind of way, it'll make you think, oh, things aren't so bad. And you'll then start to cast your mind back to what was I like at school? What kind of pranks did I play on the teachers? And how did they, how did they get over it? Or did I go too far? Well, I, I can almost guarantee you some of the stories that you'll hear in this book, you'll think, oh my goodness, how on earth did she manage that? How on earth did she keep a straight face? So the Don't Poo in a Pudding Bowl title was something that actually happened whilst I was at secondary school. And it is gross, but it does have a funny story and a funny ending because um, since I've written the book, I've been in contact with some of my former staff and that's going back to 1983. And as soon as I tell them the title, the first thing they say to me is, oh my God, the Phantom Crapper. So... 
yeah so to get any more you need to go oh, really the fan the phantom crapper now you might get an idea about what was happening around the school at the time when i was teaching the title of your book is very interesting it's called don't poo in the pudding bowl what made you come up with that title for your book well as i said Earlier, um, when I taught in the secondary school, I didn't say what it was actually a very, very deprived school. And it was an all white school with almost a handful of black kids. And we did have a case of what we called, we dubbed the phantom crapper uh, pupil who was depositing around the school somewhere. And that's one of my main things that I remember from that school thinking I'm going into this school which my lecturer from university said if you take that job that could ruin you for life so you had to have a certain kind of mentality if you had to work in that school so we knew this person was doing this kind of thing and um and they would deposit them in hallways at the bottom of stairs and you know it, I happened to be teaching in the classroom and it was found, I found it in the cupboard or a student, shall I say, found it for me. Um, so I, I thought, this is poignant. It'll grab people's attention. It'll make them think, oh, it's not a serious book about education, but it's about funny things that happen. And, and I know a lot of people have written similar things like you might get Adam Kay, who's talked about his um, work as a doctor in A&E that's just become a series so it's one of those things because you want things that are a little bit light-hearted for people to laugh about and think oh my goodness I'm glad that happened to her not to me and what what kind of things did my friends get up to or they never got up to things that bad so it was about how I handle those situations or how the staff handle those situations and that's why um when we were writing up all the stories my son went oh no you've got to make You've got to make this your title. So when I had uh, somebody doing my cover design, it was really quite interesting. I had to first of all describe what a pudding bowl is because it's very specific in England, as in it's a bowl where you have a hot pudding. But when I was trying to describe the poo and just sending me pictures, I was going, no, I want it a little bit higher and it, it needs to look like it's fresh. Can we have steam coming out of it? And then maybe a few flies round. So from the time you see it, you'll know it has a touch of humour about it. And that's the angle that I'm coming from because, you know, sometimes people finding education, life is really hard. And I want to tell you some of the funny sides and how I came out the other end and how the students are and how they came out the other end too. And you'll be able to get your own stories from that and think, oh, right, I wasn't that quite that bad at school then. Or I remember a trick that I played in a teacher that's similar to that one. And people have read it, they've emailed me and come up to me and said oh my goodness your book my parents are teachers and they've told me some stories but never like yours I don't know how you handled it so it's it's triggered lots of funny things from lots of my readers which which is really nice the fact they can come up to me and said oh my goodness I found this story so funny or that story so funny and how on earth did you manage that one so yeah that the, the title is really important because it's something that will grab the reader and make them think yeah, this is something that I need to read. And I think it, it makes a, t a great teacher gift or it makes a great holiday book for reading by the beach or even as we're in this real heat wave at the moment, something you can just get your nose stuck in into and laugh out loud, really. What was your experience like as a black female teacher working in a predominantly white school? Did you experience um, um, a, lot, a, a lot or any racism over the years? And did things change? Uh, oh with the level of racism over the period of time? It's, 
it was tough. I, um, it wasn't that long ago that I was clearing some things out and I found my old school photo of when I first started teaching at this school. I looked at the photo and I thought, there's me, the only black teacher in the school, and I am absolutely right in the middle. And that says something in itself. I remember the first day I walked in the staff room and everybody just looked up and I just thought, wow. We know what it's like when we walk around in public, you wear a certain mask. And I, I said, I'm a professional. I'm going to have to hold this down. I'm going to have to think about how I'm going to manage myself and also the few black students there because I knew that somehow they're going to be looking up to me and thinking, can she hack it? Will she, what will she be like? Is she, is she one of us? Is she one of them? Because so, so there's that too, but also because the school I had had a particular reputation, which wasn't good. And I was going in there and I was having to try and shake things up. And there's certain members of my department that didn't like that at all. So when I was trying to implement things, they were saying, oh, why are you doing that? It, you, it doesn't need to change. We've done this all the time. And so every single day, I remember getting out of bed thinking, what battle have I got to face now? And I know that if I didn't face those battles and have those heavy discussions with some of those staff, some of those students would not have remained in that school. They would not have thought to be able to come up to me and say, this and this happened, can you help me with it? And what's particularly of interest is when you have parents evening and parents see me and they just go, oh, and you can see that the shoulders drop and they think, you're one of us. It's great to have one of us on the other side. And now I can talk to you about the real things. And I see that straight away. There's that nonverbal communication between us. And I think, yeah, I know. I get it. I didn't really have that too much when I was at school, but I absolutely get it. I know I'm representing. And I know it's harder for me. But what I then had to do, I had to make sure I developed my own tribe who I can then sound off to and say, I've had this issue at work today. How am I going to deal with this? what do I need to do? And I had to pick my own battles to make sure that I was chipping away every day and that something I could progress and some things I had to let slide because you can't do that on your own. There were a group of white staff who were quite liberal who I knew I could share some things with, but those things that affect you as a black person, they will never be able to understand that. And so I had to find those networks outside of the actual school itself to be able to do that. And as I went on to my final sixth form, it was great. And my son actually went there. When he went there, he looked around, he went, wow, there are people that look like me here. And not only the people that look like him, he looked at the staff and went, there are staff that look like me here. And they were not just teaching staff, there were managing staff, there were senior management. So over those 37 years, and I became one of those, it took a lot to do. But then I thought, I've achieved a lot. It's, it's taken a lot out of me, but I know that I'm pave, helping to pave the way for a lot of other of those students who would never, ever have thought I can do this. And when they see me and when they see a few of my colleagues, they'll, they'll think, wow, they've done this. Therefore, I know I can do something else, something bigger, something better. And that was the whole thing. You know, we are there for them to climb on our shoulders and do bigger and do better. And that makes us proud when I see some of them in the street and just go, I'm now this doctor. I'm now 
this singer, I'm now this musician. And if you weren't there to help me in those days, I would never have made it. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm grateful that I'm still meeting them and they still talk to me and just say, thank you. And, uh, you know, and to this day, that still happens. So I'm just really proud of my achievements that what I battled and what I fought through. Who is the target audience of your book and what do you want uh, readers who have read your book to take away from it? I think anybody who's been in an institution of some sort where it's quite regimented, they will be able to understand some of the subtleties in there. So it hasn't necessarily got to be teachers or students. Yes, it will make you think about your school days and the the little tricks you got up up to and how you learned and how you didn't and your favourite teachers. And everybody, when they get together, Quite often they'll think, oh, right, yeah, do you remember so-and-so at school? Do you remember what they did? There's always that um, bit, little bit of information that you just go, oh, do you remember how they they developed? Any kind of institution will have, you know, have those stories. I want to do something to make people reflect and think and have a laugh and think, well, how brave is she to expose herself in this way? And I think if I didn't do that, people wouldn't be able to see some of the struggles I went through. And I've put it in a kind of funny way so that some of my former students I know who don't read that much will, and they have done, they said, do you know what? This is the first book I've read from cover to cover. And that's made me really proud. And I want people to be reading that and to be talking about it. And I want them to be telling their own stories. Because if we don't tell our own stories, how will our children and our family know about what we've been through and how will they develop? So it's about those in education, those out of education, those who are struggling and to see somebody else who has struggled and how they've overcome and how they've maintained their standards. So it's about, you know, all those kind of people. And I've been amazed at different types of people from all kinds of backgrounds who have read the book. I mean, literally yesterday I met a former colleague and a woman said, oh my goodness, are you an author? I bought your book a few weeks ago and it's absolutely fantastic. It just brought me joy. And the fact that she could say that, I've just gone, right that is great but then I had somebody else who said to me your story tells me about the level of relationships that you had with your students and when I was writing it I never thought it was about relationships I just thought it was about those funny stories or humiliating ones what I did but yes it it shows from 83 to, to 2020 the kind of relationships I had with my students and how they've developed and I've, you know I've built some characters and I've given them a backstory and background so you can see where they were coming from and where they're going to and what they've done so it's yeah so people will see different things I'm really grateful people have come back and said wow this is this is what this has done for me and then I'm just taking that and thank you very much for that so yeah, it's been really enlightening because, you know, you, when you write and you do things, you see it with a particular eye and until somebody else from another perspective says something, you don't see that kind of thing. Um, and one thing that happened to me literally last year is that I had contact from a local university who just said to me, you're the kind of person we're looking for. They bought the book and thought we need somebody in post 16 to be able to guide some of our new trainee teachers. And I'd never thought about that before. And I thought, well, if all I knew that I had to do was to write a book to work for the university, I'd have done that years ago. So for me, 
that's an additional bonus. And now, despite retiring, I, I call myself that I'm influencing the influencers. And that's a great thing to be able to do. I'm now going to actually read a re- one of the reviews um, that you received from your book. It's a five-star review that was given on Amazon. And the review, uh, this is what the review says. It's a great read, stories of Maxine Blake teaching career. Maxine taught me for two years at college, and it was interesting to read about the things that went on behind the scenes. Uh-huh. So what are some of the, you know, the interesting things that went on behind the scenes? Well, the thing is, you can't tell them the stress that you have before you walk through those doors. When you walk through those doors as a teacher, the rest of your life goes out the window. You are there to teach them and make sure they're educated and educated well. Some of the things that went on behind the scenes were sometimes heated discussions, maybe with colleagues about students' behaviours and disciplinary routes, and me having to explain to them this is the kind of family that they came from. One of the stories I do recall was about um, a student that was always, always, always late. He just never seemed to come on time. And I remember giving him some homework, and he came in without his homework, and literally without any pen or paper. So I was outside, literally about to tear a strip off him, telling him off yet again. And he looked me in the face and said, my mom has left, she's gone to America, she's taking my two younger brothers and sisters with her, and she's left me and told me to go, I need to go and live with my dad. I don't even know who my dad is. I've seen him, but I don't know who he is. And that literally brought me to tears. And then what I had to do was literally have a word with myself and say, you're about to tell him off something that is so trivial. He needs something more. What can I do for this boy? What can I do for him to make him think I care about him and it's okay? And so once he told me that story, I literally had to go and find somebody and say, this this child needs some help. Otherwise, he's not going to be in tomorrow. We need to make sure he's safe and he's absolutely fine. You know, and that was something like 10 years ago. And he's now mid-30s. And we have a talk about that. And he just says, your actions save me. So those are the kind of things you can't tell other students that because, you know, I'm trying to create a really safe environment for them. And sometimes when people say, oh, you're a teacher, you have all these long holidays, but, you know, we are almost like more social workers than we are teachers because there's so many things behind the scenes that we have to do to make sure students are safe when they're in the building, when they're out the building, and even when they're round and about because we care for them and it feels like it's almost 24-7. And if they're not in the right mindset, we have to make sure we find out what it is and what we can do to so that when they are behind those desks, that they're all prepared, they're ready to learn, and that they're mentally and physically stable to take in all of that information. So it's not just about the knowledge, but I'm preparing them for life and I'm giving them the skills for life. And I think that's one of the things in the review that that student was saying, because I never showed them what was going on behind the scenes when I'm fighting literally for the a student life so that they couldn't, they didn't, they couldn't leave college. This was their place of safety, their place of sanctuary is the only place they, they could be. And quite often we'd have some students who would never want to leave the building. And we'd realize because that's the only place where they feel safe. When they go home, they would have so much work to do, so much housework to do. They live in multiple, you know, family 
um, statuses that they didn't have a room for themselves. This was the only place that they could get to be themselves. And so we had to create that environment for them to make sure that they were happy when they were here and see what else we can do. Otherwise, I, I, you know, we felt like we weren't doing our jobs. That's why I'm telling you it's, it's exhausting, but it's satisfying. Well, Maxine, you're, you retired from teaching in 2020. How's your retirement going and what do you do now with the free time you have? Oh, I don't think I have any free time. And what's interesting, when I see some of my former colleagues, they look at me and go, you are just living the life. Can I have what some of you have? And I walk around with a smile on my face. And I, I need to find another word for retirement. I think what I've done, I've just parked that full-time job that paid the mortgage and the bills. And I've gone on to do the things that I wanted to do. Or, you know what, that I didn't even know I wanted to do. And then I realise... I'm the kind of person that likes to do five or six things at one time. I, I, I'm quite a juggler, but these things satisfy me. So yes, the book came out, but that only came out because I was locked down here and I had nowhere else to go and I couldn't do anything. But then I started to work with a, uh, a foster panel. And again, that gave me an insight to the other end. And I usually, when I was working, I'd see a student with a placement families, but not know what was going on to get them placed and that is so exposing it's such a rewarding job that I yeah so I do that quite often too and as I said before I'm now working part-time with the university so I'm helping doing the observations for the um the, the teachers who are on their qualification I sing with a gospel choir and so we, uh, back in 2019, so if anybody knows anything about pop music, we were actually the choir that were doing the uh, South Yorkshire, we were singing on with, with Take That. So, and we had bigger and better things to do. So I'm part of the, the choir and, and I helped to do the organisation for the, where we, we sing and, and everything. Um, I like hiking, so I'm out walking quite a lot, um, plotting routes, I like, I like reading. I, I'm into nutrition, so I train quite a lot too. So I just feel, and I'm sure I must have missed something out. My life is so full and so rewarding. And what I actually, one of the things my husband and I wanted to do is because we also ski. And when I first started up, there were hardly any black people at all in Europe skiing. By the time 10 years came around, I remember looking and seeing two, three generations of grandparents, parents and small kids that are on the slopes that I felt like my job is done. I thought that was absolutely wonderful. So what I wanted to do and still want to do is to help to run a chalet maybe in the French, in the French Alps. And um, we are also, my husband and I are looking at doing, um, we've got a, a travel website. And so we're looking at travel for people of a certain age. And I look at ethical traveling for black women who travel on their own too about the do's and don'ts and what you can or, or you shouldn't do and giving them advice about how to give the money back to directly to the person in the country rather than going through some international agencies so that's one of the other projects that we are working on at the moment and as we you know the world opens up a little bit uh, I've started to travel again so I'm starting to look at those things and writing blogs about my my traveling which is absolutely great so that feels exhausting just saying all of those things. 
<laughs> well, thank you for joining us on the Black Book Show, Maxine Blake. Please give us your final comments and tell the listeners, again, the title of your book and also where they can purchase your book from. Well, the book is called Don't Poo in the Pudding Bowl. So thank you so much for listening. If you want a giggle on me or my students, then it's a perfect, lighthearted book for you to think, I'm glad this didn't happen to me. So it, you can find it on my website at maxineblake.com, where you'll be able to get a link through Bike Direct from me in the UK. Or if not, I'm in lots of your local uh, good your bookshops, or you can find me on Amazon too. And I'd love it, as my readers have done so before, is send me a comment about um, how you felt about the book or any of the stories that you are um, made you think, oh, that happened to me in school. I would love to hear some of those. I know things like this haven't just happened to me. They've happened to lots of other people too. So, yes, um, and I, you know, I'll be happy to respond to you as I've done to other people too. So that would be absolutely great. Well, that's the conclusion of this section of the Black Book Show with McConnell Sankofa, myself, speaking with author Maxine Blake. And remember... Don't poo in the pudding bowl. Thank you very much.